Welcome to Therapy on the Cutting Edge, a podcast for therapists who want to be up to date on the latest advancements in the field of psychotherapy. I'm your host, Dr. Keith Sutton, a psychologist in the San Francisco Bay Area and the director of the Institute for the Advancement of Psychotherapy. Today I'll be speaking with Sean John Mate, who is a psychologist in the San Francisco Bay Area and the director of the Gender Health Training Institute. He is also a contributor to the edited book, Families in Transition, Parenting Gender Diverse Children, Adolescents, and Young Adults. Sean has a clinical practice specializing in trans, adolescents, and their families, and couples therapy. He teaches at Alliant International University in California, School of Professional Psychology, and developed the Rockway Institute's LGBTQ Human Services Certification Program, as well as being the first to teach the transgender mental health course for psychology graduate students. Sean does ongoing research in collaboration with Kaiser Permanente and Emory University, and does consultation with their representative trans health studies departments. Let's listen to the interview. So, Sean, welcome. Thanks, Keith. It's great to be here. Yeah, glad you could join me today. Um, so I know you from, gosh, we had uh, been at the same uh, internship postdocs uh, many years ago at the Family Institute of Pinole, and mm -hmm. you're very involved in the Association of Family Therapists in Northern California, um, which I'm also involved with. Um, and I've seen some of your uh, talks on working with um, uh, transgender uh, kids and adults in families. And so, yeah, I would love to hear about, you know, kind of your work and, you know, kind of share that with others and hear about what you're working on these days. So, yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, that's a, that's a long, long story. <laughs> um, you know, I think predominantly I was thinking about talking to you about this stuff and, um, you know, my focus, which is very different, I think, than a lot of people that work with the transgender community is the focus on families. And that, that has been sort of my wheelhouse and where I love to work. And, and actually, originally, I wasn't planning on working with the trans community at all. I was just wanted to focus on working with families. And as, as luck would have it, or I don't know, fate, whatever it was, uh, while I was doing my residency at Kaiser, it ended up that I was um, the only person who knew anything about family therapy and gender identity issues. And so I ended up getting families from all over Northern California, mm -hmm. which, um, cause at the time there wasn't anybody apparently doing that work. Uh, yeah. There's a lot more now, uh, still most people focus on, if they focus on kids, they focus on child, individual child therapy or play therapy and that mm -hmm. kind of thing, or, or just working with the adolescents and parents <clears throat> family are considered peripheral. Mm -hmm or um, they work with adults. <laughs> and, and again, I think very much like we learned with the LGB community that people tend to think of people as not having families. Mm -hmm. You know, their issues are around sexuality or gender identity, and we don't think about the whole context. And, you know, as many people have said, and I continue to say as well, that when one person in a family transitions, the whole family transitions mm -hmm. and everybody's impacted. Um, so, and also part of what brought me to this is I'm also trans. So, <laughs> uh -huh. that, that, but I, the reason why I didn't want to work in X, cause I like to stay away. I want to keep my personal life separate yeah. from my work, but that just isn't see how things fall out. And I'm also a true believer in that you, you know, you bring yourself to your work. It's, there's no blank slate. So, um, 
in doing that, it ended up, you know, obviously that's where I ended up getting things incorporated. And also I had people, I realized there was a hole mm-hmm. in the training and the knowledge base that people had. Um, and so I just kind of fell into that. hole, <laughs> uh, and, and I love it. I mean, I really do. I love the work. Yeah. So. Well, and I remember when you shared with me that you were uh, transgender and transitioned and, you know, it was, uh, you know, you're one of the first trans people that I've ever known kind of more on, on a, uh, you know, on a deeper level or so on. And so it was really, yeah, it was really great to, you know, get to know you. And I know for a lot of people too, I think, um, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but many people that are trans sometimes aren't necessarily wanting to necessarily be out. They're, right. you know, oftentimes transitioning from one gender to another and wanting to, you know, that that's the gender they experience themselves as. And, but, you know, being out as a transgender person, then kind of, I, I imagine, kind of shifts that, you know, from being a, a man to a transgender man. Um, right. And, and so, yeah, I've just been interested about, you know, I had a couple of interests and one about your, how you came to family therapy. And I actually, we've, we've done so much work around family therapy. I've never actually quite heard the story um, because there's a lot of people like you're saying, yeah, don't do kind of individual uh, or mostly do individual work or so on. And um, yeah, how you decided to be, become more out uh, in the work that you're doing. Yeah. I mean, you address a couple of big, big deal issues for me. I was very stealth um, for a long time and people just didn't know. And I don't, nobody ever reads me as trans, which is lucky because I'm tall and I, I have no hair. So <laughs> other than the Balding, my beard, you have a beard. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. it all fell. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, as far as me, well, let me, let me step back into the family therapy stuff. Cause that, that happened first. And, and I was thinking about um, like in my early graduate school career, I was trying to find my fit. And I, and I will say that I have always had a focus on family maybe it's the Italian culture I was raised in, but mm-hmm. I've always had this sense of family being very important and, and very central. And when I went to graduate school and, and then I took a family therapy class that that really resonated for me. And, and actually a part of what resonated for me in that also was, uh, it was a narrative. There was a lot of it was moved me into narrative therapy, which has yeah. been one of the big um, areas that influences my work mm-hmm. that, um, you know, this idea that I'm not the expert and that the people mm-hmm. are the experts on their own lives. And at first that was like, what? I'm yeah. spending all this money to go to graduate school and not be the expert. <laughs> and then, and then that was like a relief. Oh, I don't, yeah. have to, I don't have to do that. So, um, but learning to work systemically and to work, I just found that for myself, I work better in that arena. Um, and I do like things that are complicated. I do like things that are get wild on occasion. And, yeah. and you know, what couple and family therapy will take you there. Um, mm-hmm. It's certainly not boring. So um, <laughs> for my own. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say and with the um, with that idea too of the narrative piece and not being the expert you know, that there's this one piece of like, oh, wait a second, not the expert, but at the same time, it's also a bit of a relief of responsibility and that you can actually bring in other parts of the system to help, mm-hmm. um, right. you know, because I think that that's so important. I know when I was training um, in grad school, I was went home and visited family over the holidays. And I was thinking, my gosh, it, I, I wouldn't be able to just change all this, right? As a therapist, that really, this is something that, you know, we that, the, that we would all have to come together around. 
Um, but yeah, it was also, uh, I spent a year focusing on narrative um, in the beginning and yeah. so foundational. Um, that yeah, I always put that as my foundation as, as being very postmodern in that that sense and systemic and in the way I approach no matter what I do, but I'm very integrated because mm -hmm. over the years and the long time it took me to get out of graduate school, I studied a lot of different models um, and I've learned to pull all those pieces together in ways that, you know, what I call therapy that works mm -hmm. when it comes to that. Um, but it always comes from this frame of thinking more um, narratively and more systemic. So, um, and recently I've gotten really pulled in by um, liberation psychology and the, the whole notion around that, because beyond just family systems in the, the, in the small form, it's sort of going into network and community therapy um, and, and also using the wisdom, the cultural wisdom of people and what they bring in, mm -hmm. in a way that fits so well with the narrative upbringing that I had um, yeah. to, you know, incorporate, um, like in, I would say indigenous, but I mean, across whatever your culture is, your own ways of knowledge mm -hmm. and spirituality and all those things that we like to leave out <laughs> sure. in psychology. So, um, that's become, um, a new thing for me. Um, not necessarily so new, but it's like, it's been grabbing a hold of me for a little yeah. while. So where your interests have been, been kind of going. Yeah. yeah. And it fits with the whole, it fits in that whole thing. So, um, well, what you're yeah. doing too is you're really kind of expanding your connection to the the community of clients that you're working with. It's pretty significant. Um, yeah. But we'll get there in a moment. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about yeah your um yeah, yeah my kind of, story about yeah, why did story. I why did I decide to come out? <laughs> um, you know, <clears throat> there were a few things that actually I got outed in ways that were not okay with me, and I was. Um, and I experienced a lot of discrimination in various ways, it's, which is interesting because I never really put it together mm. that those things had happened. But I was trying to avoid that. And part of it, too, was, you know, when, when you come out, everybody around you does, too. Mm -hmm. So my partner, my family, like everybody gets a lens on them about having this trans family member. Mm -hmm. And it's probably some of my own internalized transphobia as well of not mm -hmm. wanting to be, I just wanted to just live my life as a man. Yeah. And I don't tend to identify as a transgender man. I identify as a man with a transgender history mm -hmm. uh, that, cause that's feels more fitting to me. Uh, and I know a lot of people who do identify mm -hmm. that way. Um, and part of it too, was that my dissertation chair told me in the beginning, be careful about coming out mm -hmm. because when you do, you get labeled as that therapist. So the gay therapist or the trans therapist or that stuff. And yeah. I wanted to be known as a family therapist, not as <laughs> that. So I, I wanted to establish myself, I guess, at some point. And then the pulse shooting happened. Mm. And when that happened, um, it kind of upended my whole world in a way that was, and I'd been through a lot of different violent things in our community, but yeah. there was something about that that felt like I could have been there. My friends could have been there. Wow. Um, and then I watched people that I cared about spin it in a totally inappropriate direction and make it look mm -hmm. like it wasn't had nothing to do with the LGBT community and that kind yeah. of stuff. And I kind of felt like I was done being quiet mm -hmm. and that it was time to come out. And of course the scariest time to come out because here's the Trump administration yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and like, you don't know whether it's even safe to, right. to be out there and doing that. But I decided I, it was no longer okay mm -hmm. to be silent. 
And so I started incorporating a lot of who I am into what I do, Mm. not just, I mean, clinically, my clients um, know what they need to know about me. Yeah, yeah. Um, in a sense that whatever they care about, and most of the trans clients know I'm trans, although they often forget. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but, but I usually am, am fairly out about that right. stuff. And um, and in the trainings I do when I'm training clinicians or when I'm working with um, in the Trans Family Alliance with the parents, I'm very open about my story. So I share yeah. pieces of what that is. And I found that I'm a much better teacher <laughs> when I'm yeah. fully present and yeah. engaging as myself yeah, in really those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, it's been a, it's been a beautiful experience and, it, and there's a part of me that has kept myself distanced from other people and even my close communities, meditation communities and other folks that I hang with that I don't, I haven't let them know who I am mm-hmm. and they always feel like I'm somewhere out there. Yeah. Like I'm not, not. And then when I come out, they're like, Oh, and then all of a sudden we all feel bonded, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, it, it had a backlash for me to keep things stealth as well, which mm-hmm. um, I'm, I've learned in the process. Yeah. Yeah, so, definitely. yeah. And I'd also say also the thing I'm going to go back to the question you had, but the, the family therapy piece, what actually taught me about family therapy was that I was working in a middle school with kids that were, it was infested with gang violence. And I was, I was feeling hopeless for the kids Mm -hmm. and really realizing that as I was in this school, I was working one-on-one with these kids or in groups and I might be able to make a change for a moment, Mm -hmm. but it was clear that if the family wasn't engaged or I couldn't somehow engage them, nothing was going to happen. They were going to go back into an environment that was going to keep the same process going. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was really the thing that set me over to like, I Mm -hmm. absolutely do not work. I do not want to work with one kid by themselves. I want to, I want to, I want to influence the whole system in a way that is helpful. And and also is acknowledging of where families are coming from and not just putting, because that's the other thing. When you work with one person, you tend to, you can demonize everybody's exactly. not in the room, right? And that's not fair. So yeah, Sometimes if you're just validating the client, but you're not necessarily seeing the larger context, sometimes it's right. harder. And not that you necessarily would invalidate the client, but yeah, sometimes you can psychologically jump on their side against the other and demonize and such. Um, yeah. But yeah, bringing in that, that, the rest of that structure really kind of opens up the context and also, you know, yeah, creates that lasting change so that when you're gone, you know, hopefully there's still, you know, kind of a shift that's been, ha- that has happened in that system. Yeah. And I often tell parents that, you know, like I, I'm with your kid, you know, 50 minutes every week or every other week, you're with them. How much? <laughs> like, yeah. Hopefully a lot more than that. And you have a lot more influence. So let's, let's work all together as a team. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And uh, sometimes when I talk, when I'm training folks or, uh, you know, interviewing folks for group practice, I kind of talk about, you know, the way that I think about it is that, you know, the measure of a good therapy is not necessarily how good of a relationship you have with the kid, which of course the basis you want to have a good relationship, but really Mm -hmm. how good of a relationship have you helped develop between the kid and the parents so that you're ultimately putting yourself out of a job. And (laughs) the attachment figure is the attachment figure rather than the therapist being the attachment figure for six months to a year or two. Absolutely. Yeah. I always say that, you know, my job is to make myself obsolete. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about, yeah, you're, um, you know, I know that you've done research, you've done writing, you've done, you know, work with uh, families. Um, 
Yeah. Can you say a little bit about that? <laughs> the, all of the things I do? <laughs> you know, it's funny that I, um, <clears throat> I, I jokingly said I was going for a PhD because I wanted to do everything and I didn't want to have to go back to school to learn it all. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, uh, and also that I would, I, I would at least get a master's along the way because I have a tendency to start things and get all involved in them and not quite finish stuff. Sure. Or at least I did. Um, I'm getting better doing mm-hmm. that I am still like it got my fingers and all kinds of stuff but um yeah I would say I have a a, a clinical practice that is way over full mm-hmm. and uh and a part of my new things that I'm launching into are related to the fact that I have right now I just counted I think I have 36 families on my wait list mm-hmm. and and so I'm having to think outside the box about how to deal with that some of it is you know thinking about you know hiring some uh, as a colleague of mine said like a junior associate or somebody who really wants to build their practice mm-hmm. um, and work with them on working because it's I would say 90 percent uh, trans youth in their families Mm-hmm. and a few couples. <laughs> yeah. And and, um, and so it's a specialty area that I feel like more people need training. And the problem is the reason I have a wait list, mm-hmm. so does everybody else that does what I do. Mm-hmm. So everybody who works with families and kids, um, they also have wait lists. So it's like, there's nobody to send anybody to. Yeah. And um, so, you know, that's one piece of thing. So I, I do have my clinical practice where I do mostly work with family. And I would say probably maybe 70% are youth. Some are little, I work with people across the lifespan from like four years to 80. So, so mm-hmm. I have, I also have adults and I, and one of the things I really enjoy also is working with couples. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I work with a lot of couples where there's a transition happening or with, mm-hmm. with uh, couples where they're expanding their relationship to be on the two of them mm-hmm. um, maybe as a part of that. And, yeah. and so that, that becomes a part of whether they're poly or non-monogamy or whatever yeah. it is and figuring out how to stay a family and deal with all the changes that are coming up. So, right. um, so that that's kind of my clinical practice and what I do. And I'm in San Francisco and Santa Rosa, but really I'm virtual. So I'm everywhere mm-hmm. now, sure. <laughs> which, which is less helpful for my, yeah. my wait list. But um then, uh, you know, I've been teaching at, at Alliant International University in California School of Professional Psychology, mm-hmm. which I developed there. Um, I was hired as a postdoc, actually, to develop the Rockway Institute's mm-hmm. LGBTQ Human Services Certificate mm-hmm. and, and help develop all the courses that were in that to begin with mm-hmm. and then taught several of them and then hired a lot of faculty to, to teach the various parts of it. And I've mm-hmm. um, slowly over time pulled out of that and they've kind of morphed into other things. They still offer it. Yeah. Um, and I teach it. It actually was the very first transgender mental health course for graduate psychology students. That was a semester long. Yeah. So there were like weekend workshops and things like that. Sure. But this is the sure. first semester long one. Um, and even in a semester, it's still hard to get information out there. Yeah. So, and, um, and I have continued to teach, although I've just pulled away from doing the foundations of LGBT mental health and, and I teach a LGBT couples and families course mm-hmm. with them. So that, um, so that's been sort of the teaching arm of what I was doing for the university. Yeah. And I've been 
I've written a lot of articles. I've done a lot of things, family process and trans, you know, International Journal of Transgenderism, actually, which is called something else now. Um, and uh, local things. And, you know, I, I've been involved in research and I love research. So I've been, a lot of the recent stuff has been a collaboration with Kaiser Permanente and Emory University and doing uh, consultation with their trans health studies mm-hmm. that are looking at people that are in those systems mm-hmm. to, um, you know, figure out what's happening with transgender people across the lifespan as well. So we, mm-hmm. uh, mostly it's been adults, but we've also gotten some, uh, a study out, a couple studies out now on youth and yeah. their experiences. And, um, mostly it's medical focused. Yeah. So well, yeah, and I'm, I'm interested too in that kind of lifespan and youth and so on. And and for you know clinicians that maybe aren't as familiar with working with transgender clients, um, something that and particularly you know I, I think your training was one of the first trainings I took um, on working with um, kids and families transgender. And uh, we did uh, RE Lab came out for that uh, conference. It was really great. That mm-hmm. was also helpful. But the there was one part where you had the audience kind of think about, you know, how old they were. Um, can you kind of describe that exercise? Cause that was really striking <laughs> to me. Yeah. And actually I'll, I'll, I'll let you know that one of the, um, I guess it would be more like a boot camp. So I've, I've started developing different kind of courses, which mm-hmm. we'll talk a little bit about what the other, one of the other arms of my, what I'm doing for clinicians who are already licensed. Mm-hmm. And um, one of them is that I, a workshop that I run both for professionals and for parents, mm-hmm. which is called Unpacking and Decontextualizing Gender. Mm-hmm. And so in every workshop I do, even if it's like a, an hour webinar or something like that, I'll usually start with the question of, you know, do you know what your gender identity is? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I actually got that from, uh, and I just did it for WPATH as well. But, right. uh, uh, I, one of the things, Jameson Green in, in his book, um, Becoming a Visible Man, mm-hmm. where he talks about his transition stuff, and he does was doing a lot of educating, talks about going into classrooms and asking people what their gender was and kind of good, working through the responses. And I thought that was so awesome that I just started doing it. And mm-hmm. what I realized was if you ask somebody their gender identity, you know, 99% of the audience, if not all, are going to raise their hand and say, yeah, I know. I know what that is. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and then if I was to pick a few people out and ask them, you know, well, what, what is it if you're willing to share and how do you know that, mm-hmm. um, you know, and 90% of those people would say, unless they have some training would say that they know who they are, say they were a guy. They mm-hmm. say, well, yeah, I'm a guy and yeah, I'm a man. And, and I know that because I have a penis. Mm-hmm. You're like, mm-hmm. okay. Um, and then I challenge it. So basically the whole thing around it is I challenge whatever it is you think, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, there's two pieces to that. I challenge it because I want you to understand what your gender identity really is. I didn't ask your sex, which is actually your, your, your body. One aspect. Yeah. Right. right. And I, so my comment to that person would usually be, okay, if you lost your penis and your scrotum and all of that stuff um, between your legs was no longer there would you cease to be a male? Mm-hmm. Would you cease to be a man? And most guys would say, oh no, I'm still a guy. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, so it's not your parts. What is it? Mm-hmm. And that's usually a question that's like, what? 
like, cause it's something you never thought about. If you're cisgender, it's something you never thought about. So uh, there's a whole process of actually unpacking gender from sex, mm -hmm. from um, gender role, mm -hmm. from, uh, you know, gender expression, mm -hmm. because a lot of people confuse like, well, I'm really effeminate. So mm -hmm. I must be somewhere in the middle. And it's like, well, what's your actual gender identity? How do you identify in this? Yeah. Like, oh, no, I identify as a guy. Like, okay, but you like to do it in a feminine way. So are those, you know, and so for some people, that is an identity. Yeah. For other people, it's an expression. Mm -hmm. So there's a way that you can unpack all that for yourself that most people, unless you're trans, have never done. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. And the other side of it is that when I walk people through that, particularly professionals, I walk them through the process of that and I ask them those questions and, or I get them to ask each other and they can't answer them. Mm. And then somebody's saying, well, but explain it to me. And they try and explain it. And somebody's like, yeah, I don't quite get it. Can you tell me more? Like, I don't, mm -hmm. I'm not sure you've sold me on the fact that that's who you are. Can you explain more about that? Mm -hmm. And the more and more somebody goes into that, the more they realize how hard that is to answer that question. And then you have to turn around and think about what is it like for your trans client? Mm -hmm. Why is it they're supposed to know these things when you don't? Yeah. Right. You're have to tell. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And so I, and I think it's absolutely important. This is a self of the therapist work. Mm -hmm. If you're going to work with a community, I don't care mm -hmm. what community is, but when it's the trans community, you need to look at and understand your own gender identity because we all have one. Yeah, you know, and, and we don't think we do if we if we haven't been challenged on it. But mm -hmm. understanding what that is and how you came to know it helps you connect with the community rather than it being the other. It's like, oh yeah, we all have a gender identity. Yeah, you just had a different kind of struggle around it than I had. Um, well, and that's the privileged position, not even think mm -hmm. about it and just yeah. take it as a, a assumption. Yeah. Um, you know, there was something too that that you did in the workshop that I thought was really interesting. You had us. Um, think about how old we were when we mm -hmm. knew what our gender was. Yeah. And, you know, for most people, they were remembering back to like preschool age. And something that you had said, if I'm remembering right, is that many, you know, kids, adolescents, adults who are trans knew then. Mm -hmm. And I, I was, I think that that particularly was, was interesting. I hadn't necessarily thought of that. And, you know, oftentimes that like, especially as, you know, kids are adolescents going through, you know, kind of their, their own feelings about sexuality and gender and so on. I hadn't necessarily thought about it even earlier than, than that. I mean, both for gender as well as uh, sexuality. Um, right. Well, I think that the, that's an important thing and it's a part of unpacking gender, which is to separate it from sexuality. Mm -hmm. And I mean, sexual orientation in particular, yeah. because most people conflate the two. Yeah. They think, they think, oh, I didn't like, I'll even ask people in my courses. Cause then all my courses, I actually have people unpack their gender and their sexuality. And I will ask them, well, um, yeah. How old were you when you were clear about who you were as a gendered being mm -hmm. when you really knew what that was. And a lot of people who have never thought about it equated to their sexuality. They're like, like, uh, I knew I was a guy the first time I found myself attracted to a girl. And mm -hmm. I'm like, really? So you, before that, you, somebody would have called you a girl and you would have said, sure. Mm -hmm. um, and they're like, oh, no, no. And so they, they mix those up. So the, the, um, it, it really is learning to separate because most people, gender identity and even the developmental models say you're supposed to know it before the age of six. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. If you don't know it before the age of six, this is the old models, but if you don't know it before the age of six, then you're delayed in development. Mm-hmm. And somehow that's true for cisgender folks, but not for trans folks. Somehow trans folks can't know it. Like if they, if they're really young, they're under six yeah. and they know it. And most know it somewhere between 18 months to three years to four years, mm-hmm. somewhere in there. But if they don't know it, then, then, um, well, if they, or if they do know it, then they're too young. They couldn't mm-hmm. possibly know this. They could be anything they don't really know. Then if they hit adolescence, which is usually when most people come out because there's, sure. that's when the discrepancy around puberty happens, mm-hmm. then, you know, they can't know it then either because while well, you did, if you didn't know it when you were six or when mm-hmm. it was earlier then like now you're too old, but then yeah. again, you're also an adolescent. So you really don't know anything about anything mm-hmm. anyway. So therefore, how can you possibly know it? You're also too young. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I see that with people in their twenties, it's like, well, you know, twenties is an experimental time yeah. and you can, you know, like, and, and really how can it be real in your twenties if you didn't know it when you were two. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there's, and it's, it's a complicated thing. So I would say that most people have a sense mm-hmm. of their gender identity. Some people who are not as dysphoric, mm-hmm. people who are very dysphoric will know it really young. People yeah. who are not as dysphoric may be able to bend and shift and, and put it in some other box or that kind of stuff. And it doesn't become an issue until either their body changes in the wrong direction mm-hmm. or they're, um, they are trying to be sexual in their body and they realize it's not the right fit. Yeah. Um, and, and those are the areas where I see people like they, it's untenable after that. And some people still try not to do that because they just, they, it, it's a hard thing to do. Yeah. It's a hard life. So well, um, yeah. So those are big deals and understanding that usually sexuality comes on in puberty mm-hmm. um, and, it, and it is a different thing, who you like versus who you are. Yeah, definitely. Right. Yeah. I, I really found, I'm sure, I don't, I don't know if you use it, but the gender bread person, um, you know, kind of looking at those kind of variants of mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Biological sex, uh, sexual orientation, uh, what we're attracted to romantically versus sexually and so on. Um, which I've used even with my own kids to talk about, um, you know, kind of the different levels. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll let you know that the gender bred person is a little out of favor now that it's, it's transformed oh. to the gender unicorn. So if you oh, have, really, gender unicorn, I mean, okay, right. Well, one of the things I, I to know like about the version the trans or something, uh, right, right, right. Yeah. yeah, the trans community is like. Um, one of the things about the community is that things are always changing and they change really quickly, particularly yeah. around language and what's favorable and what's not favorable and what's okay and what's not okay. And, you know, I'm sure there's things that I will say that other people will just be aghast at. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, so things are, things are always morphing. And so um, right. I, it's, it's important to stay kind of on top of what those things are a little bit, but also know you're never going to know it all. And sure. so somebody will teach you along the way and you got to be open to that's okay. It's how yeah. it works <laughs> and be teachable all along the way. So, yeah. 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 Being open. And I think too, that, you know, um, I think a thought and, you know, I think, yeah, a thought that even comes to my head sometimes is, you know, the whole, is this a phase, you know, kind of piece, which I think that oftentimes, you know, the dominant culture, you know, really has this narrative that it's just a phase, whether that, you know, it, it was, I think, even more focused on sexuality before and, and now kind of, you know, much more focused now on kind of um, gender. Um, and, and I'm just wondering, like, what do you, t- how do you talk about that with therapists about kind of navigating that and being affirming um, and working with a family that may be in that place of it's a phase, or again, you know, 
some kids that maybe are, you know, going through that uh, a kind of a phase of uh, understanding their self and their identity and may not necessarily end up identifying as, uh, you know, opposite gender. Yeah, I, th- I think there's oh, there's so much in that. Um, one, I got to name the political backlash that's happening right now and that there is a huge pushback against particularly those assigned female at birth transitioning. Mm-hmm. Um, that and anybody helping children, like somehow children can't know their gender. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to that that initial exercise where when I'm working with clinicians, I really want them to understand how they know what they know, mm-hmm. because when you understand how you know what you know, mm-hmm. it's much easier to recognize it in other people and how they know it. Yeah. And, and kids are often very clear about it. We also need to remember that, I mean, the data that's coming out about um, the physiology, mm-hmm. um, the brain structures, the neurology stuff that's going on around gender is it what it looks like is that trans folks that their brain function and structure is much more similar to their affirmed gender than to their mm. biological or assigned sex. So um, they when they look at brain scans, both right. functional MRIs and CAT scans and stuff like that, what they notice is that like trans boys look more like boys than they do like girls. Mm and vice versa. And this is before hormones or any other kind of stuff that has happened. So you can't blame it on anything other than this is just, so there there is, it may be, I'm not going to call it an intersex condition because that's not appropriate, but there is Mm -hmm. something about that. There's a development that has happened that is unique to these Mm -hmm. folks and that it is, there is a biological component to it. Mm -hmm. It's not all biological, but it's, you know, that, that, that the sense that what needs to happen is a medical intervention. And this mm-hmm. is part of where people get really upset. It's like they confuse medical, a medical necessity mm-hmm. with cosmetic surgery. Mm-hmm. And yeah. often with kids, we're not even talking about surgery right? yeah. <laughs> at all. That's later. Sure. And we're, but we're also talking about a medical issue and it really shouldn't be a psychological issue. It should be a psychological issue as the effect of a medical issue. Mm-hmm. And the ICD is now turned taken it out of psychological stuff and put it in the medical category. Uh, The rest of the world seems to be following that suit, that this is what's happening, that there is actually a medical issue going on Mm -hmm. with that discrepancy between the what you see in your mind's eye about what you're, what you're supposed to look like versus how it shows up. Mm -hmm. It's like the mind did go one way and the body went another. And, and so helping, I think I help clinicians both with understanding yourself Mm-hmm. Then understanding the data that's out there, the, the both the psychological and the medical data, uh, neurobi- neurobiological data, and then learning to ask the questions and listen, listen and pay attention to the response that you're getting from the mm-hmm. kids. That's that's a piece of help, and that can happen across the lifespan, no matter how old the child yeah. is or the adult. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to understand who they are and where that all fits and, and where the truth lies mm-hmm. for them in that identity. For some people, they are exploring it. They're still trying to figure out how it fits, yeah. or maybe they have a clear sense of who they are, but they're not sure how to present it to the world. Mm-hmm. Some people may feel very much one gender and present a different gender to the world because that's more comfortable for them. And they keep that other very close and everybody has a unique way of how they get to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to talking to parents, who believe this is a phase, I do the same kind of work with them. 
So if mm-hmm. I teach you how to deconstruct that, I would, I do that with parents. Right. It's like, let's look at how you know who you are. Let's look at what this is and, and why would your kid be different? Mm-hmm. Who is your kid? Who do you know them to be? Mm-hmm. You know, cause a lot of parents will talk to me about how amazing and smart and brilliant their kid is and how they do all this stuff. And, yeah. and they're, they, they've, they're really on the ball about this and on the ball about that. And then you ask them, well, what about their gender? They're like, oh, they're, they're totally confused about that. <laughs> right? So it's like they're, they've got it across the board, except they can't know who they are. Sure. Right. And so it's a bit of, I think first it's joining mm-hmm. always, because <clears throat> if the parents don't feel like you understand their perspective and what their fears are and what they're going through, they will not hang around to figure out what's going on with their kid because yeah. you don't get them. Mm-hmm. So as much as you want to help the kid, that's why the family work is so important. The family has to be brought on board because they're going to be a part of all that. And it impacts them in a huge way. They've got a lot of catching up to do. And and part of what I also talk about is, you know, transgender people go through a journey, Mm -hmm. right? They go through a journey from when they first figure out that something's going on to trying to make it go away to then realizing, you know, this is the thing and then trying to figure out what to do about it. And what does it mean? Where am I going to go? And then telling people there's this whole process, right? right? Parents have the exact same journey, a little bit different, but mostly it's the same. Problem is they start out, so say their kid has gone through, I've gotten all the information. I know who I am. I now know what I need. I've figured out all the things I need. And now I've come out to you. I'm down here. Yeah. You find out about this. You're here. You're yeah. back at the beginning with like, what? Yep. <laughs> I just need to make sure that this is real. And then you got to go gather all the information. Mm-hmm. And I find parents are way behind their kids. Right. Yeah. And part of my job is to help them catch up. Mm-hmm. And then I find that therapists are in the same place. So mm-hmm. you get a therapist who has a family who comes into them or a kid who comes out and they didn't realize. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's a kid that they've got a really great relationship with and they don't want to refer them out somewhere. Yeah. And they're like, oh, I don't know this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then we get afraid that, oh, I'm outside of my competency level or, and so then we're running around trying to get informed. Like, mm-hmm. how do I learn this stuff really quickly? How do I figure out how to do this? And, and there is this process that we have to go through. And it's, and then part of the process is understanding ourself mm-hmm. and, and then um, learning all of the various things that the family needs to go through and, and trying to understand it's a developmental process for the therapist to be, go from being, Oh my God, I have a trans client uh-huh. or I have a trans family member and I don't know about this stuff mm-hmm. and to a place where they feel like they're a gender affirming therapist or even a specialist, they mm-hmm. may get so, so involved in it. They're like, Oh, I want to specialize in this work. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and for me coming back to my wait list, mm-hmm. that's a part of it. It's like, if I can help train more people to be able to do that kind of work, um, there will be more people out there Yeah, <laughs> and we won't need these, have these terrible long wait lists. So, mm-hmm. um, what is your institute called that you started? Oh, it's a gender health training Institute. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And we're, um, and the whole focus of that is to help therapists on their own gender journey mm-hmm. of, of becoming a gender affirmative therapist, which is both a personal journey of understanding yourself and also a professional journey of understanding things like you, you need to be able to understand minority stress. You need to be able mm-hmm. to understand the language and you need to understand not how to change your model. So like, I'm not teaching a model, yeah. of therapy so much more systemic but whatever model you use 
Mm-hmm. You need to know where it's transphobic, where it's um, where it is heteronormative, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, cisnormative, and, and more often it's in those realms. And how to shift what you're doing so that you can meet your clients. So it's mm-hmm. it's about a, a bit about learning that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's a gender health training institute, and um, I've had a lot of I do a lot of surveying of the community mm-hmm. to find out what people need and what they want. And the biggest issue right now, a big topic, hot topic with the trans community, adult community in particular, mm-hmm. and a lot of clinicians is writing letters for medical mm-hmm. interventions. And yeah. as a clinician, how do you do that properly and not be a gatekeeper? Because mm-hmm. we don't need any more gatekeepers, but how do you do that and help your client? And yet you're also held accountable, you know, mm-hmm. partially if you write a letter that you've recommended that this is something that they need, how do you hold your position as a therapist where you're not a medical provider Mm -hmm. and, and giving insight into the psychology of that client without gatekeeping them? And how do you do a proper gender health evaluation to be able to do that, depending upon the complexity and age and all that kind of stuff. So to do that, I've decided, um, in actually in the beginning of June, I'm going to offer a boot camp, which I decided rather than, because I like things experiential. Yeah. And people have a tendency, like I can throw all this information at you and you'll kind of right. like, it'll hit you and you might take a little piece of it and remember, Oh, there was that thing, Yeah, exactly. um, but we don't tend to use it. So I wanted to do something that was a do it with you kind of experience mm-hmm. where, so we're going to go in and actually go through building a gender health evaluation that works for your practice uh-huh. and learn how to write the letters, oh, wow. what kind of letters are evolved and we'll come, you'll come away with your own templates and then I'll, I'll throw in some of mine as well, but then you'll have some skill set in that. So it's not a gender 101 kind of thing. There's mm-hmm. some expectation that, you know, some stuff, but I'm sure. going to try and do a little bit of some free kind of training in advance. So people can get up to speed with some of those things and, and take enough away from that, that they can use that. So I'm going to, what I've decided is to sort of offer more of those kind of courses sure. or boot camps, And, and then, um, I also am developing, which I'm going to start this summer, a, a coaching and mentorship program, mm. because it's actually, I'm much better when, when I have a group of people and they say, I want this. And then I'm like, okay, I can create that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, of course. so it's like, oh, you need a course or a workshop in that. Okay. Let me do that for you. So, sure. um, and then it's meeting people where they're at and what they need. So if I get yeah. a group of clinicians who really want um, a particular kind of training, then they're getting exactly what they're asking for. And so uh-huh. we're we're all working well together with that. So those are some of the things down the road for the, the, the Institute. And what I'm hoping to do is just sort of have developed more of these kinds of trainings. And some will be like, you don't have to show up live. Like I'll record those and then we'll make things available. um, If you can't make it live in that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, so that's, that's that piece. And, and then the other part is, I'm hoping as it develops that mm-hmm. we're going to be able to offer two other parts, which is um, assessment materials mm-hmm. in the sense of that. There's a lot of things that we need to think about around depression and anxiety and all these other kinds of things um, and minority stress and, and various factors that show up in the trans community and um, to develop a database of ways that clinicians can actually send their clients in to do these things. And they get a feedback yeah. that kind of tells them where, where their clients are at in a way that can help them mm-hmm. um, figure out how to better treat in the moment or what, what the focus is. And they, there may be things they're missing because they're not asking the questions and they show up sure. in the survey. So that's one piece. 
And mm. the other piece is to do some kind of a certification. So as people get a certain level of training that I can um, let it be known that they've, you know, had that level of training sure. so that they, they're able to actually build a viable practice. Cause that's another piece is that I think we can't help people if we don't have a practice that's thriving and, you know, we need people to, to know that we're there. And well, so it's a way to I, identify that somebody has some of the, the key elements, um, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and for clients to be able to be more informed consumers. Um, yeah. Because sometimes, you know, that a lot of people say they do stuff that they haven't necessarily so. had the training in. They might think they even know how to do it, but sometimes if right. they haven't had the extent of the training, then sometimes, yeah, um, it, it, you know, clients don't get what they need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just talking to, I, I do an interview for the, the Trans Family Alliance, which is the other piece that I, I started because of my wait list was uh-huh. to house a, a community, a membership community for parents, where I've actually been taking them through their own gender journey as mm-hmm. a part of the, That's not what I initially intended to do, but that's, yeah, yeah. that's what it became because that's kind of what I do, I guess. Um, but they, I decided to do a lot what we do at the conferences and to start developing the materials that they would normally get at a conference that they can get at 24 seven. And I, um, so I've been interviewing once a month, an expert based on what they want to learn more about. And mm-hmm. we just had uh, Nick Teich come, Teich come from uh, Camp Aeronutic, which mm-hmm. is uh, a camp, the first camp for transgender and gender expansive youth mm-hmm. to come to talk to the parents about camps, you yeah. know, whether it's sleepaway camps or day camps and that kind of stuff and how to vet them and things like that. And okay. one of the things he said and how this fits is that a lot of people, a lot of camps will say that they are LGBT affirming. Well, they want to mm-hmm. be. Mm-hmm. So they put in a policy, but they don't get the training yeah. and they don't actually know how to do it. So your kids go there and they actually aren't treated well, mm-hmm. or they're not protected in the way that they need to be. Yeah. And I think the same is true with our clinical work that there are a lot of clinicians who put out that they are something mm-hmm. or they pick, you know, they're, they are on an insurance panel and they pick LGBT sure. and they maybe know something about sexual orientation, but haven't really studied the gender stuff or they know little pieces of it, but they don't know how to do these other parts. And so I think there's a lot of folks who are very affirming, mm-hmm. want to be affirming, but they haven't had the training to actually do that, mm-hmm. particularly with the, the trans community. So yeah. 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 Well, that's great that you're making that resource available for people. Um, that'll be really, <laughs> really helpful. Yeah. Cause I, even when I was hearing about writing the letter, I was like, Oh gosh, I don't know if I would, I would feel like I want a lot more training. I, I have, uh, unfortunately I've only worked with one kid who is um, uh, a trans identified, which came out through the, the, the work and he mm-hmm. came in, there was oppositionality and so on. And that was, it was really good work where he was able to talk to his family about it. And we, but then I, you know, transitioned them to uh, an expert in that area because they were also interested in, you know, um, looking into um, uh, hormone blocking, you know, uh, mm-hmm. medications and so on. But I think that, yeah, it's great that you're having that training because I'm sure that's a big question mark. And also, you know, there's also the do no harm. And so there, I'm sure there's mm-hmm. therapists and I know I would kind of feel like, oh, I want to make sure I get this right, um, especially if it's something that's going to be simply, you know, irreversible. Right. And, and the do no harm piece is really important. I think that a lot of parents and, and therapists feel like uh, they need to slow way down. And that's often what happens. Oh, wait a minute. Back up. Got to slow down. Let's, let's, yeah. let's really look closely at this. 
And that, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but if you have somebody who's in crisis and they've been way slowed down for a long time, it just so happens that they came out when they couldn't stand it anymore. Yeah. Um, you're not in a position where you can just hang out and wait. And often, you know, it's a, it's an area where not doing something can be more powerful and mm. harder, more harm than doing something. Mm-hmm. So um, there are no neutral options, basically. Yeah, yeah whether you're a therapist. And I think it's really hard also on clients to have a well-established, you know, how long it takes for a kid to really connect with a therapist, Mm -hmm. feel like you get them. And then it's like, Oh, sorry, I can't work with that part of you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then send them on. And, and how, you know, how helpful is that Mm -hmm. to your client? Sometimes that's great. It's time to do that. But um, I find often that there's a special relationship and they trust you mm-hmm. and they need your help and they need you to understand this stuff. And so it really requires getting up to speed and mm-hmm. not, um, you know, punting that yeah. stuff yeah. or collaborating in some yeah. way, you know, like I collaborate with a lot of folks or sure. comes to things like that, because maybe I don't hold the case, but I help do the gender health evaluation because they need that. They don't have time sure. to do that piece or, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, there are ways to do that kind of kind of stuff. Um, I imagine it's a balance too, right? Because some therapists may, you know, they have that good relationship, and sometimes if it's a more you know relation re- relational kind of dynamic approach, then you know, kind of shifting that feels not so great, and so they might want to go out and get that training. But at right. the same time, sometimes it is okay to you know let somebody go, especially like this family I was working with. They wanted they were like, okay, now we know what's going on. Let's get the expert in this area. And right. so, kind of, I think that balance of figuring out because yeah, the, the other experience of like, oop, I can't do this. Like, I gotta, right. I'll, I'll, I'll give you three names. Is also not a good experience. Right. And, well, and one of the things I I can tell you from somebody who sometimes gets those kids that are oh, I have a therapist, but you're the gender specialist is that we don't get the full picture sometimes it takes mm-hmm. a lot longer to get all that that information yeah. and um and also the kid feels like no you're the gender person <laughs> i'm not going to talk to you about any sure, of other sure. issues i'm yeah. going to talk to you about the gender stuff and so it's it come, becomes a sort of encapsulated thing that isn't always the best and the most yeah. helpful for the client mm-hmm. um yeah and there's a couple of other things that come up around the letters in particular and why it's a, a, a big deal right now in the community, and it always has been, is the gatekeeping component. So it used mm-hmm. to be that therapists were the, the gatekeepers, and they would decide whether somebody had a right to transition or not. And, it, and the, regardless of what the person felt or yeah. believed or knew about themselves. And, and there is a difference between talking about youth and families mm-hmm. versus adults. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and when an adult has gone through whatever their thing is and, and you, you're still asked to write a letter on their behalf. Mm-hmm. And luckily there are a lot of things letters are not required for, but insurance companies yeah. will require them. Uh, and for adults, there are groups out there like, uh, I don't remember what it stands for, GALAP, G-A-L-A-P, mm-hmm. that will do either pro bono, like one session where they meet with somebody and they'll write letters you know, and I, you know, if I have somebody come to me who's been transitioned and they're really looking to have lower surgery, I'm not going to walk them through (laughs) general health evaluation to go, do you really know who you are? (laughs) Obviously, you know who you are, you've been living it. 
you know, and that you need these various things. And, and so I think we tend to take things out of the context of the person mm. and, and where they're at. I mean, it's same with a kid. If I have a kid whose family has, they've transitioned like when they were 18 months or two years and they've been, been living as their affirmed gender for four years. And then yeah. they come to me because they need a gender specialist on their team to write the letters, to get the hormone blockers and all mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. Right. I'm not going to, you know, I've, I've, I'm going to learn the history around that, but I'm not going to expect them to go through the same kind of thing. Sure. I want them sure. to be fully informed about each phase of treatment, but um, you know, they know who they are. That's yeah, not the issue. Pretty clear. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> you know, it's harder when we're talking about kids who are non-binary um, not because they don't know who they are, but because we're struggling to get language around what is it going mm-hmm. on. And what does it mean to be in middle space? And, you know, that that somebody can clearly identify as that is Mm -hmm. very true. And we have trouble understanding how to how to write about it, you know, how to make sense out of what what their language is when they're doing that. And that's often confused as a phase Mm -hmm. when it's not. Now, I will say it's like bisexuality in a sense. Mm-hmm. that bisexuality for a long time was considered a phase mm-hmm. from one sexual orientation to the other. Sure. And that when you had reached, finished your phase, you'd end up in one camp or the other, this binary. Right. right? Yeah. And I think the non-binary um, folks are getting that same kind of misconception. Mm-hmm. There are some people who do wander into non-binary or gender queer space, just trying to figure out what fits best. Yeah. Um, and then end up in a binary place. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of folks who don't, that they are in that non-binary space. And that's really who they are. They might have to choose a binary physiologically, mm-hmm. and they may choose something that looks like the opposite of their assigned sex, because that's way more comfortable. Sure. But they're still living in non-binary space. Yeah. So, um, And we don't understand it very well. And because mm-hmm. we don't understand it, us who are not non-binary. Sure, <laughs> sure. Um, <clears throat> we tend to dismiss it. And I think mm-hmm. that's really unfair to yeah. that. So, um, well, and I understand the fear of therapists, mm-hmm. right? Because I, I find therapists to be very risk averse mm-hmm. much like insurance companies are. Sure, sure. <laughs> and, and, and so you're, you're trying to protect yourself as long and as well as not do harm and all that kind of stuff. And sometimes we get so overprotective around that, that we harm our clients in the process. We have yeah, to be careful yeah. about that dance. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you're doing great work and it's definitely sounds like it's a needed area because I, I think that, you know, especially with, um, yeah, more clients being more aware and, you know, that, that um, being able to learn how to be more affirmative and help, you mm-hmm. know, uh, take care of their clients' needs and respond to them in the ways that they need is so important. So that's great that you're doing that. Yeah. Well, um, I'll say before, I know we're getting near the end, but one thing that I really want to comment on is this term authenticity. Mm. And I just kind of want to leave things in a way with that because I want, that's what we're doing. Mm. You know, that's what we're doing as individuals who are trans. We're trying to be the most authentic us we can be in the world, whatever that happens to be. Yeah. That's, that's who families are trying to be. They're trying to be, they're trying to help their kid be the most authentic. They're trying to be the most authentic in their 
their representation of all that. And as clinicians, we have to do that. We have to think about how do we help people be the most authentic and step into their community and culture in those ways? And how do we be the most authentic in doing that? I find the more authentic, like I said in the beginning, the more authentic I am, the the better this all lands. Yeah. And the better I am. So yeah. And that kind of connection and that, you know, kind of being able to connect with others is really Mm -hmm. there. Yeah. Yeah. Be real. Well, thank, thank you so much for, uh, you know, taking the time today. This is really great. And I really appreciate hearing about what you're doing. It's always good. I'm looking forward to the upcoming trainings. I'll definitely have to check that out myself too. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. This was fun. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us. If you're wanting to use this podcast to earn continuing education credits, please go to our website at therapyonthecuttingedge.com. Our podcast is brought to you by the Institute for the Advancement of Psychotherapy, providing in-person and remote therapy in the San Francisco Bay Area. IAP provides training for licensed clinicians through our in-person and online programs, as well as our treatment for children, adolescents, families, couples, and individual adults. For more information, go to sfiap.com or call 415-617-5932. Also, we really appreciate feedback. And if you have something you're interested in, something that's on the cutting edge of the field of therapy and think clinicians should know about it, send us an email or call us. We're always looking for the advancements in the field of psychotherapy to help in creating lasting changes for our clients.